Welcome and good morning to you. I hope that each of you had a good Christmas and that you're looking forward to a good new year. If you're visiting with us for the first time or for the first time in a while, special welcome to you. Glad you're here. There's never a better time to get back into church than a new year and a fresh start. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to come join us. We just finished our Advent Sermon Series, which helped us redirect our hearts and minds towards Jesus through the holiday season. This morning we are kicking off our next sermon series called People of the Book to help us redirect our hearts and minds towards Jesus through a renewed commitment to Bible reading through the year of 2018. The word phrase, people of the book, is an Islamic reference to Jews and Christians. We chose this particular name for our series because we want to be a people of the book. We want to be a people who learn the Bible who love the Bible, and who live the Bible in 2018. It may come as a surprise to you to find out that Islam has a particularly high regard for the inspiration and authority of Christian scripture. But if you dig a little deeper into uh, Islamic tradition and teaching, you find that it's not really that surprising at all. For one, Islam is an Abrahamic religion, as are Judaism and Christianity. That means that Islam, Judaism, and Christianity can all trace our roots back to Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. From Isaac, he had a son named Jacob. Jacob becomes the people of Israel, who are the Jewish people. So Judaism can trace its heritage back to Abraham. From Israel comes Jesus. From Jesus comes Christianity. So Christians can trace their heritage back to Abraham. Abraham also had another son named Ishmael. From Ishmael comes a whole tribe of descendants of which originates the Islamic faith and teaching. So Islam has a particularly high regard for Christian scripture because Islam considers Christianity to come from the same heritage. Islam also has a particularly high regard for the inspiration and authority of Christian scripture because they have a particularly high regard for Jesus. They don't consider him to be the Christ or the Messiah as we do, but they do consider him to be a prophet, and they have a profound amount of respect for him. As a result, even though they don't agree with everything that's in Christian scripture, they do have a respect for it. It, While it may be surprising to you that Islam has a high regard for the inspiration and authority of scripture, it probably isn't a, a surprise to you to find out that Westerners have a very particularly hard time accepting the Christian scriptures to be inspired and authoritative. This is for a, a several different reasons. The first of which is history. If you go back and you study history in Western culture for three or four hundred years, you clearly get an understanding of how we've arrived at our skepticism and cynicism today. In the 1700s, we had the Enlightenment, which was called the Age of Reason. At that time, there were a large number of people who believed that religious institutions were corrupt and unhelpful, that we no longer needed religious explanations for the phenomena of our life because everything could be explained using the scientific method. There was a strong cynicism towards anything that smelled of institution and a strong criticism and skepticism towards anything supernatural, spiritual, or religious. That particular time in our history was marked by uh, autonomy and a pursuit of reason above all else. The Enlightenment gave way to modernism in the 1800s and postmodernism in the 1900s. Postmodernism is the teaching that 
All, of, all truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for someone else is true for them. Our experience of reality is subjective. Therefore, truth itself must be subjective. At the turn of the 21st century, coming into the 2000s, postmodernism gave way to liberal Protestantism where we have come to see the scriptures as maybe a good fable that might have some inspiration for our life and be helpful in practical ways, but there's some things about that are archaic, outdated, and we need to do away with because we've come into a new era and we need to fresh revelation from God. Now, another reason is the misuse and abuse of authority. In the West, we have seen this run rampant over the course of the last 10, 20, 50 years. We've seen the misuse and abuse of authority in government, in the church, in the home, in business, in education. We've seen oppression and racial injustice, police brutality, one person taking advantage of another person time and time again. And it's led us to believe that all authority must be bad authority. And if the Christian scriptures have authority, then we just don't want anything to do with them. Something else that has contributed to our disinterest in and apathy towards scripture is sometimes growing up in the church. In the West, we have the privilege of religious freedom where we can worship when we want, where we want, how we want. And for the better part of several hundred years, Christianity has ruled the day. Not everyone has been Christian over the course of the last several hundred years, but Christianity has been the predominant influence in our culture And Christianity has been the predominantly easiest way to identify with a faith in any way whatsoever. The result has been that it's been really easy for people to say they're Christian when they're not really Christian. Because everybody else was doing it. That's why you suddenly see in the last 10 years what's been called the rise of the nuns. Not the kind that dress up in Catholic garb, but the kind that no longer affiliate with any religion. And the reason is there's been a cultural shift in which people no longer identify with Christianity as the predominant influence in the West because Christianity is no longer the predominant influence in the West. And the result is a bunch of people are seeing this and they're jumping ship. They're saying, I'm no longer religious. I don't want to be associated with that. But those who have remained in the church over the course of the last 10 to 20 years have had the privilege of celebrity pastors, pretty good pastors with pretty good preaching that's available on podcasts and YouTube and the Internet. Websites can have it downloaded right to your phone. And so the result is that we've become so familiar growing up with Bible stories that it's just become background noise. It's something that we hear in the background and sometimes rises to the surface like when you're at a local coffee shop and your favorite song comes on. But for the most part, we've just kind of distanced ourselves from it because we generally accept it to be true or helpful and it's no longer that interesting to us. It's old news. I share that with you because we are all immersed in a cultural story that is subconsciously shaping our worldview, our values, and our beliefs, even about the Bible and about God. And if we're not aware of the cultural story that we're immersed in, it's totally going to have influence on our life, and we're not even going to realize it. In addition to that, it is impossible for us to combat the narrative of our culture if we're not aware of the narrative of our culture. But the result of the last several decades of this cultural story has been that we've developed a disinterest in and apathy towards the scriptures at best. Or we've just become totally cynical at worst. 
We see it as old news, irrelevant, totally absurd. When I think of this generation and our attitude towards scriptures, I think of my attitude towards middle school math. I take it that some of you can relate. When I was in middle school, sitting in math class, I remember taking notes, doing division and multiplication, addition and subtraction. And all through class, I'm thinking, this is so dumb. I have a calculator. Why do I need to learn this? And then it got worse because then I got to seventh and eighth grade math and you had to learn algebra and some calculus. You had to learn about exponents and integers and a a bunch of other stuff I forgot, obviously. Right? And I thought, this is absurd. Who needs to know this? Well, it turns out I get to be 18, 19, 20 years old. I get a job. I suddenly want to know how to add and subtract well. I I get to be in my mid-20s, and I'm thinking, apartment life isn't that fun. I want a house. Suddenly, I wish I understood how interest rates work. How exponents work. Suddenly I wish I didn't need a calculator when I'm standing in the grocery line trying to figure out how much change I should be getting back. And suddenly I wish I didn't have to consult my financial advisor just to balance my checkbook. At the time I thought it was just totally irrelevant. But looking back I see I really should have paid attention. My hope this morning is that you would consider Or maybe reconsider with me the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. And that you would submit your lives to them as you commit to reading them, believing them, and living them. But before we can get to the authority of scripture, we must begin with the authority of God. Because God inspired them. In the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to rescue the people of Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians. God appears to Moses in a burning bush and has a conversation with him. And in that conversation, Moses asks God a question. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That seems a little bit crazy because God doesn't even give himself a noun for a name. He uses a verb. I am. It's the verb to to be, being. He is that he is that he is. He just is. This implies that God is eternal, uncreated, self-existent, self-sufficient, All things come from him, and therefore all things are subject to him. He just is. No one and nothing else in the entire universe can claim to just be. But God is. It is his very nature to simply be. And because it's his very nature to simply be, he exists beyond all that that exists. God also makes this point incredibly clear in Isaiah chapter 45. Listen carefully with me as I read. You'll see how much authority God declares over that which he created. 
It says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to open, to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Then again in verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. There's no mistake about it. God is in charge. He has the authority. When I was a kid, there was one thing that was clearly understood in my household. Dad was man of the house. Whenever I made a questionable decision, mother sent me to father. Whenever I had an absurd question, mom sent me to dad. Whenever there was a debate between my mother and I, I heard the house rock as my dad got up from the couch. My dad was the boss. Same is true with God. For many of us, when it comes to considering the authority of Scripture, the first thing we must get right in our minds is the authority of God. The Scriptures will only carry as much weight in our lives as God carries weight in our lives. The scriptures will only be as important to us as God is important to us. And we will only take the scriptures as seriously as we take God. So if we want to be a people of the book, we must first be a people of God. That's where it begins. The implications here are clear. God is in charge. He has authority over all that exists, including you, and I. 
Let's take a look together at what that means regarding Scripture. Our text this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. This is a letter written from the aging missionary pastor Paul to his young co-worker and protege Timothy. Paul is using this final letter that he is writing from prison in Rome to instill in young Timothy everything Timothy needs to know for pastoral leadership and ministry. The first part of the book is entirely focused on the type of man that Timothy must be in order to pastor well. The second part of the book is entirely focused on the type of ministry that, that Timothy must lead in order to lead well. The section that we're reading from this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a section in which Paul begins to warn Timothy against the false teachers of his day. At that time, there were false teachers in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring who were teaching false doctrine. They had abandoned the truth of scripture for empty philosophy and liberal theology. Much like what is happening in our world today where people are saying, the Bible isn't literally true, it's just kind of a good inspiration. And the theology that we once had as a church is no longer the theology that we need because we live in a different era and we need to adapt to the changing times. The things that we're facing as a people today are the exact same things that Timothy was facing in his pastoral ministry 2,000 years ago. And Paul is taking the opportunity in this letter to remind Timothy of the inspiration and authority of Scripture so he could have confidence in it and hold firmly to it. We would do well, like Timothy, to pay attention to Paul's words this morning, that we too might hold firmly to the teaching of Scripture, as Timothy did in his day. The text begins in verse 14. Paul says, But as for you, talking to Timothy, saying, Don't be like the people who are abandoning the scriptures, who are being liberal and loose in their theology, and who are just taking on the postmodern relativism of their day. You be different. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul says, I've diligently taught you everything you need to know about the scriptures so you can have confidence in them. Now hold firmly to that even though I'm no longer present with you. Hold firmly to the things that you've heard Brian and Dylan and others at Jubilee teach you because they're teaching you from the word of God. And they want you to have confidence that you can look to and trust in this in your daily life. Paul says specifically to Timothy that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings. Sacred writings are just the definition of scripture. It's something categorically different than anything else we can read in our culture today because it is inspired by God. And the danger of being acquainted with the scriptures is that you can be familiar with them without being formed by them. Many of us in the room this morning come from a Christian background. You grew up in church, you heard the Bible stories. You can sing the songs. You're familiar with the scriptures. My invitation for you this morning is that you would walk away committed not only to being familiar with them, but being formed by them. Paul says also, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Not some scripture, 
Not the scripture you like, not the scripture that's easy to understand, but all scripture is breathed out by God. The language there for breathed out by God is literally God-spirited. God's spirit inspired it. This is called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning the very words of God. Plenary meaning they have authority over our lives. And inspiration meaning that they're inspired by and come from God. In the Old Testament, in some cases, the writing of scriptures came from God showing up and physically presenting himself to a person tangibly. This is the case with Moses. Moses went up to the Mount, Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. God spoke, spoke with Moses face to face on the mountain and in the tent of meeting while the Israelites were making their exodus through the wilderness. So Moses received his revelation of scripture that he wrote down directly face to face with God. There are other instances throughout the Old Testament scripture in which God makes appearances to people as well. Many of the prophets are a good example. It says, the word of the Lord came to them. Uh, The ancient Hebrews had such a high regard for the name of God that they wouldn't even spell his name out. They took out all the vowels because they wanted to revere the fact that he is totally, uncomprehensibly, categorically different than anything or anyone else. So out of respect for his name, they didn't spell it out. In the same way, when they recorded Old Testament scripture, they often did not use the name of God. They would sometimes replace it with, the word of the Lord came to so and so and such and such. So when you read in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to this prophet or that prophet, it's not like they had a TV screen dropped down in front of them in which they could read the words themselves. It was that God, uh, most likely in pre-incarnate Jesus, showing up to them to dictate scripture to them. Uh, In other cases throughout the Old Testament, we have the inspired word of God that was simply inspired by the Holy Spirit carrying people along in the things they were writing. Much like wind carrying along a sailboat. The boat isn't actually propelling itself, it's the wind doing it. In the same way, even though men were writing some of these things, it's the Holy Spirit coming along to breathe into the sails of their writing. This is the case with books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and many of the Psalms. God wasn't showing up to them but he was still inspiring them nonetheless. And what we read in those sections of scriptures are still profitable for us today. And finally, in the New Testament, all of the New Testament books were either written by somebody who had personally been with Jesus or by somebody who confirmed with those who had personally been with Jesus. They were apostles writing it or someone tagging along with the apostles writing it under the uh, the apostles' authority. Peter One of the early apostles and one of the primary leaders in the early church confirms this for us in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 21. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, We didn't make this up while we were smoking peyote on some reservation somewhere. He says, We physically walked with Jesus, God incarnate. We saw him, we talked to him, we in fact saw that he was transformed and his deity was shown to us in person. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born to us from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, we didn't make it up. We saw the dude in person. We heard the voice of God declaring him to be his son, and we paid attention, just like we're calling you to do. When I was a freshman football player at Northwest Missouri State several years ago, one of the first things that the coaches gave me when I walked through the door was a playbook that was like two inches thick. Surprisingly, the first half of that playbook had nothing to do with any of the plays I would be running. It had everything to do with the type of athlete and student my coaches were expecting me to be. The entire first section of that playbook was the the vision and mission and values of our team. It was the expectations of our coaches and the way they would hold us accountable if we didn't live up to those expectations. It was an entire set of customs and and a history of the team and what they hoped to do in the year and decade to come. It was a football dynasty that had been to several national championships and became a national football powerhouse. And they laid out for us as freshmen everything that it was going to take to reach that one objective. And then, like two-thirds of the way through the playbook, you actually saw some plays. Now, the thing about that playbook was that it wasn't actually written by my coach. It was written by graduate assistants under the inspiration of our head coach. Then they submitted it to him, and with his agreement, they gave it to us. So it was written by grad students, but it had the inspiration and authority of our head football coach because that playbook embodied everything that coach wanted to communicate to us as his players. The thing about that playbook is it didn't have authority in my life as a freshman football player because of what was written in it. It had authority over my life because of the coach who inspired it. That's the case for the Bible as well. The Bible is a collection of books, more of a library, if you will, written by some 40 different men over the course of some 1,500 years. It sums up 66 different books. Now, those men penned the words of Scripture, but they did so under the inspiration and authority of God. So the Bible has authority, not because of what is written in it, but because of the God who inspired it. It may have been penned by the hands of living, breathing men, but it was inspired by the authority of God. We should take it seriously. Why should we submit to Scripture's teaching? Because it's inspired by God. This passage gives at least two other reasons why we should submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Those are in verse 15, 16, and 17. Beginning in verse 15, it says, Because uh, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I told you guys earlier in the sermon that you are being subconsciously shaped by a cultural story 
that is having an effect on your beliefs, your worldviews, and your values without you knowing it. You're immersed in it. It's in the television shows that you watch. It's in the news that you listen to. It's in the friends that you hang out with. It's in the school that you're getting your education from. It is all around you. And if you're blind to it, it's because you're like a fish in water. You just don't know that it's happening to you. But the beautiful thing about the Bible is it too is an amazing story that has the power to shape and transform your life. The reason we should be reading the scriptures daily, believing them wholeheartedly, and living them intentionally, is because by doing so, we immerse ourselves in the story of God. The story that he is writing from the beginning of time, a story that he is still writing in our world today, and the story that he will continue writing until he returns to establish his throne forever. If we want to combat this cultural story that is inundating our lives, we must immerse ourselves in the Bible story that has the power to change our lives. This story is a story that makes you wise for salvation. It's a story of rescue and restoration. A story of redemption and reconciliation. The story that we have sinned against a holy God and we deserve the just penalty of his wrath for our sins against him. But that he is a good, merciful, gracious, and loving God who has come to rescue us from our sin through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's not just content to rescue us from our sin. He is totally committed to restoring ourselves to him, heart, mind, body, and soul. It's a story of redemption in which we are broken people living in a broken world full of disorder and chaos and dysfunction. And God loves our world and he was willing to have his son Jesus Christ broken on a cross to bring that world back to him. It's a story of reconciliation in which we're enemies with God because of our sin against him. But God is a friend to us, treating his own son like an enemy on the cross so he could treat us as sons and daughters. It's a beautiful story. It's a story we must be immersed in in order for that good news to sink down deep and change our lives. Let me take you briefly through the entire Bible in three minutes. Can I do that? I want you to see this story unfold. I want you to be inspired by the invitation that God is extending to you to be a part of that story. See, the Bible begins in Genesis where God creates all that exists. And for the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Jewish Torah, God makes his character known to the people of Israel. He time and again shows up personally, making known to them who he is, what he's like, what he's doing, what he's after, where he's going. And in those first five books, he also lays out the law, which is his expectations for how his people should live. And that law both shows them how life works best, but also the fact that they are unable to live up to that law because of their sin. It shows them their need for a Savior and gives them hope that God is going to one day send a Savior to rescue them from their sin. Then you get past the Pentateuch and you get to the history literature, which is judges through, maybe Haggai, uh, judges on. Uh, And and in those books, we see the long, sad story of sin's dysfunction and destruction of the world that God created. We're unraveling at the seams. And we see that sin is so destructive and so sad and so powerful to keep us from God. 
But then we get to the wisdom literature, and the wisdom literature, like the Pentateuch, reminds us that life works best under the authority of God. It reminds us that we live in a sad, sorry, broken world because of sin, but that God has a better way for us in Jesus Christ. Then we get to the prophets, and the, promises, the prophets warn us of the coming judgment of God against sinners and their sin if they continue to live in disobedience to him, doing harm to one another. But the prophets also deliver for us a promise that God is sending a Messiah to rescue us from our sin and to restore our broken world back to himself. Then we get to the New Testament Gospels, the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And in those four books, we have the wonderful recording of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, who he is, what he does, his representation of God to us, and what he is after in this world. We get after the Gospels, it's called the Epistles, which are the pastoral letters from the Apostles to the early churches that they might know and understand the things that Jesus has done for them and rejoice over the good news. And finally, the, book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, points us back to the first book of the Bible generation, Genesis. And it reminds us that things will not always be this way. But that we have a Savior who's come once to deal with sin. And he's coming again to deal with sin forever. To establish his throne. To remove sorrow and sadness and sin and destruction and dysfunction. And to put an end to the brokenness. Restoring God's world back to the Father. That there would be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. But that we would live forever with the God who loves us. Isn't that a good story? The best part is it's a true story. And it's a story that has incredible power to change your life. Can I plead with you this morning? Immerse yourself in that story. You won't regret it. That's a a second reason why we should read the Bible, believe the Bible, and live the Bible. There's a third. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's beneficial. Uh, the, the Bible does us good. God has our best interests in mind. And we should read it because since he's God and he made us, he knows us best. And he probably has some things that will really help us if we listen to them. It's profitable for teaching. It can help us learn things about God, ourselves, our world, and our place in it that we would otherwise not know without that revelation. It's profitable for reproof. It has the ability to confront our assumptions, our unbelief, our idolatry, our folly. It has the ability to get down deep and change our lives. It's profitable for correction. It helps us change our thinking so we can see things rightly. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. Through the scriptures, we have the ability to understand morality so much better. We can become more virtuous people. We can have instilled in us the very character that God wants instilled to us by the power of his Holy Spirit working through the scriptures. Verse 17, that the man of God, or woman for that matter, may be competent, equipped for every good work. The, this idea of man of God being competent, it can also be understood as man of God being mature. The scriptures have everything we need to grow to spiritual adulthood. And by reading them, we do ourselves a favor 
on our spiritual journey. They're profitable for equipping us for every good work. Like I said, the story of God is that he's at work in our broken world to restore it back to himself in Jesus Christ. The scriptures equip us to participate with God, to partner with him in his redeeming work to bring this world back to himself. They help us see how broken it is. They help us see how the good news of Jesus can change all of that. They help us see how we can enter into the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and our friends to bring hope to hopeless situations, to bring life to lifeless situations, to bring renewal to broken situations. The scriptures help us not just learn about the story of God and not just even be changed personally by the story of God, but to actually enter the story of God and participate in it. You can say amen to that. Thank you. Uh, I grew up in church. My mom became a Christian when I was five years old, started taking my brother and I to the Baptist church down the street. It was in that Baptist church that I heard about Jesus. I heard the Bible stories. I went to youth camp. I went to VBS. I went to Awana, if any of you remember that. I prayed the sinner's prayer and got born again, 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 to the point where I was probably closer to reincarnating as a Buddhist than I was becoming a born-again Christian. I mean, I was in it. I was in that church world. I could tell you the stories back to you better than you could tell you the stories yourself. I knew the Bible. But you know what? It's just noise to me. 16 years old, I still wasn't a Christian. I could tell you all about who Jesus is. I could all tell you all about what Jesus had done. I could tell you all about my need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, but I wouldn't do it. I'd become so familiar that I allowed myself to assume that the scriptures were just old news. The strange thing is, over all that time, I'd never once cracked the Bible for myself. All of my understanding of the scriptures came from a really brilliant Bible teacher or from my Sunday school teachers. None of it came from me actually opening the word and reading it. I was 17 years old, about to be uh, or a junior in high school, going into my senior year, and uh, met a family who had free dinners for my high school football team. And they were willing to give us lobster and steak and prime rib and the good stuff under one condition, that we hear them do a devotional about Jesus. So that, that's a fair trade. I already know, so that's not going to bother me. You know? um, and it was at a time in my life where I was actually on my way out of the church. I was a nominal Christian at best. I, I was only a Christian because I didn't know what else to call myself. I wasn't a Buddhist. I wasn't a Muslim. I wasn't Hindu. I was an atheist. I believe there was a God. Agnostics seemed a little bit ambiguous to me, so I guess I'm a Christian, right? It wasn't that I loved Jesus. It's just that I didn't know what I was, but I was slowly drifting into becoming a type of person who now today would mark on a survey, I have no religious affiliation. And this family knew my story. They came to me one day and they said, look, I know you're familiar with the scriptures, but it's clear that they have no weight in your life. I think you need to read them for yourself. And they challenged me to take one summer to read through the Bible. If it didn't change me, I could walk away forever. But if it did, I was to give my life to the Lord. I took him up on that challenge. I read the entire New Testament in like, I don't know, two months. And you know what? Didn't understand a single thing. 
I walked away like, what was that about? But something strange began to happen to me. And it's actually really confusing. So confusing, I was like, ah, I don't know about this. Am I getting myself into something that is really unhelpful? But something happened to me. I found myself loving God. I found myself wanting more of God in my life. I found myself more curious about this person called Jesus. So I got done and I said, I'm going to try that again. If it doesn't work this time, I'm done with it. And somewhere along the journey, still didn't understand a thing. I got through the, the New Testament a second time. And I don't know when it happened. I don't know why it happened. I don't know how it happened. But I woke up one morning and I thought, this Jesus guy is the real deal. I think I'm a Christian. And I'm not really sure when or why that happened. But I'm going to give the rest of my life to serving him and living out his story. That's the power of the scriptures. The Bible is essential for life and faith because it tells us how to get right with God and it gives us everything we need to grow in God. Children grow best when they're fed well. As children of God, we are going to grow best when we feed ourselves on the scriptures. We would do well to read the Bible, believe the Bible, and live the Bible. Thankfully, Jubilee's got you covered. The staff at Jubilee have put together a Jubilee Bible reading plan. This thing is great. It has everything you need to read the Bible every single day throughout 2018. So if you're like, I don't know what to read, Bible reading plan will tell you. If you're like, hey, I don't want to read alone, great. There's 300 plus other people in Jubilee who are all going to be reading the Bible. You can read it together. Please do not be content in 2018 to eat what Brian and Dylan regurgitate for you on a Sunday morning. That's nothing against Brian and Dylan. They have lots of great things to say. We should listen to the teaching. They help us understand and apply the word of God. But that's to say they're like a vitamin supplement. They should not be a meal replacement. Why would you eat somebody else's leftovers when you can feast on the word for yourself? The Jubilee Bible reading plan is going to be like a Bible meal plan. You're going to wake up in the morning and say, what do I eat today? The Jubilee Bible reading plan says, you're eating Psalms. Enjoy. Feast. Right? And the beautiful thing about the Bible reading plan is you don't have to eat alone. You can eat with the 300 other people in Jubilee and have a feast on the word together. You can do it with your community group. You can do it with your spouse. You can do it with your friend. You can do it with your kids. You could do it with the non-Christian at your work. That'd be good, wouldn't it? But the other thing about it is that God created the universe with his words. Genesis 1 says that God said, and boom, there was the universe, just like that. Now think about that. If God's words have the power to bring something out of nothing, don't you think the word of God might have the power to do something in your life? Might not the word of God have the power to bring faith where there is no faith? 
to bring healing to your broken situation where there is no healing? Might not the word of God have the power to change your life if the word of God has the power to bring the universe into existence? Why would we not want to be a people who access that every day? God is inviting us to his banqueting table and it's called the word of God. Let's be a people of the book. We should submit ourselves to the inspiration and authority of Scripture because it's inspired by God, it teaches us about Jesus, and it's practically helpful for our daily life. But there's one final reason I want to encourage us to do so this morning, and that is Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, calls Jesus the exact representation of God's being. It says that God spoke to us in former days through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his Son. Meaning everything that God wants to communicate to us, he's communicated to us in a person, Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at what Jesus is like. You want to know what God is about in our world? Look at what Jesus is about in our world. No further questions. It's all in him. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 calls Jesus the Word. He says the Word was with God in the beginning and the Word was God. In John chapter 1, I think verse 18, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God put skin on and became human to make the invisible God visible, to make the incomprehensible God comprehensible. Everything we need to know about God is found in Jesus Christ. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11 says this. Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Sound familiar? Like maybe Isaiah 45 coming through? And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God's final word to us. We don't have to be skeptical about whether or not the scriptures are going to do us good. Because through Christ's death, he showed us that God is relentlessly committed to our well-being, even at the cost of his own life. And through Jesus' resurrection, he showed us that he has all the authority to bring something out of nothing, to bring life out of death, to make us new and to restore us to himself. Jesus confirms this in Luke 24, 27. When after his resurrection, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. As we head into 2018, can I invite you, even urge you, to commit to reading the Bible every day? Now, maybe reading the Bible every day seems like a lofty goal. Maybe you can commit to reading it every week, right? You can skip meals. Eventually you go hungry, and when you get hungry, that can be your prompt to go back and feast on the Word again. But can I invite you to consider that? Maybe you came in here skeptical this morning, not quite sure about what you think of Christianity, not quite sure what you think of the Bible. But this morning, can I invite you 
consider the scriptures from 2018? Maybe you'll find the inspired word inspiring you. Maybe you've come in this morning and you know the Bible is true, but you've been a bit reluctant to read it because you're not quite sure how it's going to make you feel. You can rest assured that whatever sin you've committed, however distant you've been, God has grace and love and mercy for you through his word. Maybe the Bible's been like an old friend. Maybe 2018 is your opportunity to get reacquainted. And maybe you've been like me. You've been so familiar that it's become background noise. Maybe 2018 is your opportunity to commit to letting the scriptures form your life. To immerse yourself in the great story and to participate in it. The Bible is God's inspired and authoritative word to us. We can trust it because Jesus showed it to be trustworthy. In 2018, can we be a people who read the Bible, who believe the Bible, and who live the Bible together? Can we be a people of the book? Let's pray.